Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's IAQ Radio. It's Friday, April 22nd, 2016. This is episode number 411. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio at the controls is John. You gotta have faith. And joining us from back in McKee's Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hi, Joe. Hi, John. Hello, everybody. There he is. All right. This week, we've got part one of our interviews we did at the 2016 IEQ and Energy Conference held by the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council. This week, we're going to have Jack Springston, Dr. Bob Herrick, Ed Light, and Guy Sylvester. Before we do that, though, we've got to stop and thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractor shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To Andrew Gonzer. Certified Safety Consulting in St. Louis, Missouri, for the first correct answer to last week's IQ Radio Trivia Question. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, April 22, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company who creates unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for this week's IQ Radio Trivia Question. Name the first place in the United States to receive the morning sun.
Yiddish word mensch means a person of integrity and honor. According to Leo Rospin, the Yiddish maven and author of The Joys of Yiddish, a mensch is someone to admire and emulate, someone of noble character. The key to being a real mensch is nothing less than character, rectitude, dignity, a sense of what is right, reasonable, and decorous. The term is used as a high compliment, expressing the rarity and value of that person's individual qualities. The word has migrated into American English, where a mensch is a particularly good person, a stand-up guy, a person with qualities one would hope for in a friend or trusted colleague. It's with great sadness that we bid farewell to Butch Carpenter, who in both private life and business was a true mensch. He was an innovator and pioneer in the field of disaster repair, who served on the original Water Loss Institute Steering Committee and hosted a member tour at the first Water Loss Institute Conference in 1996. Butch by the letter. B, he was a bonus who always provided more than what was expected. U, he was unconventional. He sought and found better ways to do things. The T is for technical and mechanical proficiency. The C was for creative and inventive. And H was a hero. He was a combat veteran, an example, and a hero to his children. The firm he founded, Ideal Restoration, Inc., in San Francisco, continues and is in the very capable hands of his daughter, Jacqueline. Butch is survived by his loving wife, Michelle, and daughters, Jacqueline and Nicole. We interviewed Jacqueline and Butch on episode 112 of IQ Radio on February 13, 2009. And at that time, that firm had successfully completed over 100,000 sewage losses. I think my friend Pete also has some words. Uh, thanks, uh, Joe. Of course, it's hard to follow anything after that really poignant uh, tribute that, that Cook gave. But you know, I um, I wrote some notes down here. You know, Butch was like a he was like a big brother to me. You know, I'm an only child. I always told him that. Um, I remember from the first day that I ever met him. 1983 in Long Beach, California, the Regional Carpet Cleaners Association meeting. We became instant friends, and, you know, we we worked together as friends and associates in the industry for 30 years. Uh, it was, I was happy to see, you know, his daughter Jacqueline take the business over. Um, you know, he was a guy who, who kind of just lived his life uh, on his own terms, let the chips fall where they may, and uh, he was a no-nonsense kind of guy. And uh, I guess the few words I like to say uh, is is kind of analogous. You know, with him being a soldier, they asked uh, General Schwartz um, after his time in the first Gulf War, what would he like to see on his tombstone? And it was real short and sweet. He said, he, he, he said well, one of my tombstones, I'm a good soldier, love my family, and I serve my country. Well... If I had to just say real short and sweet about Butch, I'd probably say he was a trailblazer. He loved his family and friends, and he built a sustainable business model in the cleaning and restoration industry that now lives on in the next generation to his daughter Jacqueline. Um, you know, he left us too soon. I'll miss him. And anyway, thanks, guys. I appreciate taking the time to recognize And he was, uh, he was really a true... Thank you, Pete and and Cliff. I know you guys were both very close to Butch, and I'm um, I'm just glad that we have a 
a great show that people can listen to anytime. And we put the uh, link on the show announcement today. So, uh, you know, love to have people go back and check that out. The following interviews took place at the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council's 2016 IEQ and Energy Conference in Portland, Maine. This week we'll have Steve Caulfield, Dr. Bob Herrick, Ed Light, and Guy Sylvester. Two weeks from today, we'll come back and we'll finish up the interviews. We had uh, Sam Rashkin, Paula Schenk, David Shea, and Jack Springston. So take a listen, enjoy, and we'll come back at the end and say goodbye. With me to my right is Steve Caulfield. Steve is the president of Turner Building Science and Design, and uh, he's in located in Harrison, Maine. He's the president of the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council, and he's a mechanical engineer uh, that does a lot of indoor air quality work in the area. So good to have you here, Steve. Good to, always see you, good, Joe. To, good to get with you all the time. How many years has this event been going on now? Yeah, we were calculating last night. This is the 18th annual conference. We don't. We don't put that at the front of the uh, the front of the program, but uh, we've been doing this since last century. Eighteen years. Has it grown <laughs> pretty much over the years? Or? It's fluctuated. You know, it depends on what the issues of the day are. I can recall in the early two thousands, we had a conference that was completely devoted to mold, and we had hundreds of people here. Hmm. Um, but we try to cover a wide range of topics, so we, we appeal to a, a wide swath of the, uh, the the people in the industry. Have you always had IAQ and energy? No, combined? that's been a recent development. I mean, we've always talked about building science, so we've had some information about buildings and energy, and it just made sense to focus a little more on on energy in the last few years. Good. And uh, the last thing, what, you know, listeners always like to learn something new from these events. What have you learned over the years? What little piece of advice can you give people listening in? A little piece of advice. You know, I liked Bob's column in his magazine this month. I think, you know, the best part of this conference is really networking with other people. I've learned more from the other folks who do what I do. Um, and I'm talking to them, I'm able to help them as well. And it's, it's really uh, being here in person, uh, there's no substitute. And Bob, I wanted to know if you have anything to add? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. You know, being... Uh, being in the industry and being act- actively engaged by participating in industry, industry events, I think, is paramount. That, that's really, and, and I think the face-to-face yep. interaction is really almost sometimes more valuable than the actual presentations. Nothing against all of us presenters, but the reality is that face-to-face where you can actually speak with your peers, I think, is huge. And get so. deeper into subjects. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Real-world stuff. Yep. And this is a little unique in that you have all these energy guys coming in, too, which is nice to see all the, the um, energy recovery ventilators, all the, you know, the vendors with those types of uh, equipment? Yeah, well we've had quite a few of them um, have been with us for a long period of time particularly the the ventilation folks because it's a big part of of air quality and it just makes sense to go further into that Um, we're hoping you know, in, in future years that we'll have vendors associated with, you know, insulating systems and and flashing and windows like you'd see at any energy conference. Uh, but it's going to take time to build that way. <laughs> well, thanks, Steve, and we appreciate you having us here yep. and uh, joining you at the conference. All right. Okay, so next up we've got Robert, Bob, you go by Bob? Bob is good. Bob Herrick. Uh, Dr. Herrick is uh, past 
chair of the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, past president of the International Occupational Hygiene Association, and he's on the uh, faculty at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Prior to joining the faculty at Harvard, he spent 17 years at NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, where he conducted occupational health research. His doctorate is in uh, science and industrial hygiene from the Harvard School of Public Health. So welcome, Bob. Great to have you with us. Thanks for the invitation. Welcome. And, that you know, Jack was just talking about a, a couple of things that I know you've had... Uh, uh, you've had done some work in, and one was the nanoparticles, which we really hadn't even considered uh, uh, as a question, but we were talking before the show about uh, 3D printing and yeah. how some of the emissions from these 3D printers are raising some red flags. Can you tell listeners a little bit about what those uh, emissions include and, and what kind of issues we're concerned about? Yeah, definitely, and that's what we're going to talk about uh, this afternoon. We've done some preliminary work around the particles and the VOCs and the polycyclic compounds that are emitted from 3D printers, and they tend to be a very rich source uh, of all three of those types of air contaminants. So the concern on the particle size is that we're looking at particles that are in the nano size range, the ultrafine size particles, and those, you know, you may not necessarily know everything about the toxicology of those, and we certainly don't, but I think, you know, it's safe to say that you really don't want particles uh, of that size getting into your respiratory tract, because they penetrate deep into the lung and are likely to be deposited in regions where they, they could definitely have some toxicologic effects. So, and, and the other dimension of those is that you know, when you do the um, 3D printing, it uses one of these resin systems that we've, we've been familiar with for a long time. The most common one I've seen is uh, what's called ABS. It's acrylonitrile, butadiene, styrene, rubber. It's one of the workhorse polymers of the um, synthetic chemical industry. And so you're melting that resin that, that in fact could still contain some unreacted acrylonitrile, butadiene, and styrene because those resins aren't 100% uh, free of the monomers. Um, you're melting that in a laser and injecting it through the 3D printer head to produce the part that you'd eventually like uh, to emerge from the 3D printing. Um, you definitely don't want particles you know, that could potentially have those reactive systems uh, getting into your lungs in a size range uh, that, the produce, that, the, that the printers produce. So that, you know, at least at the moment, I think is, is our primary interest. And really, there is a little surprising there hasn't been more research done on this because the 3D printing technology, as you probably have seen, is just, you know, leaping forward really fast. But there hasn't really been much research around the exposures to try to keep up with the new technology. I'm curious to know, are there warning labels or in the manufacturer's instructions? Does it say this should be used in a well-ventilated area? Is there any warning whatsoever on these products? There tends not to be, at least from the ones that I've seen and, and talking to the people who use them. Uh, you know, they're really easy to set up. You can just, you, we could put one right here. Um, and so they're common <coughs> now in, in laboratories and in classrooms. Um, 
we have them in, in some of the towns in Massachusetts. They'll put one in the community library because you can just put it on a desk someplace. And people can write the software, you know, so if they want to make a part, you know, a toy for their kid or, um, I mean, the one that got some attention uh, because you could potentially make, say, a plastic gun, you mm -hmm. know, by writing the software, um, the printer doesn't care. It'll produce whatever you tell it. So people write the code and then come to the printer, put it in, load it into the computer, and, and produce the part. So it's clearly a technology that has lots and lots of applications, uh, including one that we'll talk about this afternoon where you can use it to make uh, cookies and pizza. So uh, it isn't just um, you know synthetic polymers. In fact, NASA's really interested in it for some of the really long-range space flights that um, conceivably people could use 3D printing technology to make food in space. And we were talking about them actually making buildings with 3D printers and using concrete and... Uh, yeah, some of the concrete uh, can be fabricated because you imagine, you know, if you can write the software, you can, it, it'll make any part you want. And so if you want to make, you know, right on the site, some prefabricated concrete pieces, um, you can do that in, in any shape or size or form that you want. Bob? No, I, th I think that's fascinating, but... Uh, yeah, I, I definitely see the concern of you know because you you are getting those polymers in your space and people are using them almost the same as they would just put an inkjet printer on their desk exactly. and and it's not an inkjet printer. <laughs> and they have their own issues. They well, well, sure, pr any printer too. Yeah, laser printers with the with the the uh, toner and everything. Sure. Do you think these are more of a potential health issue than the typical inkjet printer or the, you know uh, printers of the past? I think. Um, in some of the cases with the printers that were around, at one point ozone was one of the big concerns. Sure. You know? right. So yeah. that was actually a pretty easy fix though because you can put a carbon filter on the printer and, and change the technology and, and scrub out the ozone. Uh, I think it, in this case it isn't that it's an insoluble problem, it's just that the level of awareness is really low. Mm -hmm. And so both among the users and the manufacturers community, there, there just isn't really much sense that there's anything to be concerned about. But these articles are starting to show up in the literature. We've, I've seen a few things lately, for example, looking at the particles in coffee centers where you know, people run, you know, in some cases, color printers you know, 24 hours a day you know, doing commercial printing. And, and some of the levels that are found in there are, are extraordinarily high. We, we mentioned you know, health effects and, and different chemicals, gases, particles. How you come from... Uh, NIOSH, your background at NIOSH and, and with the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, we have permissible exposure limits for certain chemicals and uh, substances within the United States. Who develops those permissible exposure limits? I was at a session yesterday and they were talking about PELs and and nobody seemed to really have the answer. Or TLVs, you know, obviously yeah. from ACJH. At least in the U.S., I can speak to that. Uh, the ones that we refer to as PELs, those are the ones that OSHA promulgates, and, and those are the ones that are legally enforceable. And so the word permissible actually has a legal meaning there. And so if you're you know, wondering about what it is that OSHA would use as their reference value if they came and did some kind of a inspection and measured something in the air, those are the numbers that actually have the force of law. Those numbers, in a lot of cases, date back to the 60s. And, and actually, if you look at the OSHA website, um, 
the guy who's the OSHA director, I think, is a very brave man. And he, uh, last year, actually has on the website that, you know, OSHA acknowledges that a lot of these PELs are outdated and, and may not really be protective of worker health, given what we know today. And so what he put together was a what they call annotated tables. So you, you can see these on the website, where in the single table they've got the OSHA PEL, they've got the threshold limit value or the TLV from ACGIH, which we can talk about in a minute. They've got NIOSH, which is a sort of OSHA's sister agency. NIOSH is set up to do the research um, to support OSHA. They have their own limits that they call recommended exposure limits, or REL's. Um, and then it's actually some separate values that California has promulgated of their own. And so on a single table, you can see, just looking across the columns, these different values. And, and you see almost without exception that the OSHA standard is always much higher than these other ones. So the, the other two that I mentioned, the ACGIH, TLV, and, and NIOSH's recommendations, don't have the force of law, um, but they tend to be something that reflects a, a more contemporary view of what's known about the health effects and the toxicity um, than the OSHA standards. Because you might have seen, you know, just recently OSHA came out with a new standard for crystal and silica that's going to make a huge impact, especially in the construction industry. I think they spent almost 20 years trying to update that standard. Wow. To, to the extent that when they finally got it promulgated, you know, they, they basically had a big party. They had the <laughs> Secretary of Labor there and all these, you know, um, you know, distinguished people around, you know, and they were all happy, which of course they should be. But, but it's kind of sad in the sense that OSHA has so much trouble updating the standards, and, and a lot of that unfortunately stems um, from litigation. There's, there's always been, uh, you know, there's been sort of a tradition that when OSHA tries to change standards, they almost expect to be sued. You kind of anticipated my, my question, which was why haven't these been updated? Uh, and the, from the 60s, how many, round number, how many PELs do we have? Uh, well, OSHA has, I'm going to guess, around 500. Around 500. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a pretty significant number, but out of the thousands and thousands of different exposures people have. Exactly. And, and would it be accurate to say that even though the ACGIH um, and the NIOSH TLVs and recommended exposure levels don't have the force of law, but are, are they also, uh, do they have some impact in that they can be used in legal cases? Well, they come up in legal cases all the time um, because, you know, it's, it's well acknowledged that the OSHA values, you know, really are not up to date for, for many, many chemicals. And so it, it sort of gets into the, the legal realm, which I'm not an attorney, nor do I wish to be. But, there, you know, the, the question about, you know, what's the best available evidence, you know. And, and so if someone is responsible for exposing their workers, for example, to a chemical, you know, there is a presumption that um, the, the people, you know, who are responsible for those levels have some knowledge of what a protective value should be. And and I was gonna say, would, would you also agree that since I mean all these levels are pretty much uh, individual chemical specific, so they don't reflect synergistic effects of perhaps lower, much lower levels, you know, magnitudes lower, but a mix of multitudes of these in, in an indoor environment, and how that, how that, you know, how the indoor environment with many of those chemicals together would potentially be adverse uh, to health, you know, as opposed to a single, uh, you know, 
uh, industrial exposure, for example, yeah. for one product. No, that's, that's totally true, and, and you know, it's well recognized in, in um, the occupational health world that you know, standard by or chemical by chemical standards, you know, you can't assume that that's really a protective level if you have a mixture. And actually, mm-hmm. in the ACGIH um, TLVs, they have a calculation you can do for synergistic and additive effects if you have mixtures, let's say, of, a, of VOCs, for example, that you had, say, benzene, toluene, and xylene, and you were you know, interested in the cumulative effect for the neurotoxicity, you would add those together. But that OSHA really can't cite people on a basis sure. like that. And with, with respect to indoor air quality work, I've seen in the past people use, and even today, um, where they will take a, a permissible exposure limit and say divide by 10, and then you know treat that as a uh, a, a guideline for indoor air quality. Do you think that's an appropriate way of handling indoor air quality issues? No, I actually think it's a really bad idea. Um, if you take a look at, especially ACGIH, since they you know tend to update this more often. In the TLV book, which is the, the compendium of, of the threshold limit values, they must have five or six different places where they, they have some statement to the effect to say um, this value is not intended to be used as some kind of a bright line between safe and unsafe conditions. And in the case of the TLV, it's really set at a level that they anticipate would not have any harmful effects on workers exposed five days a week for eight hours a day. So to take that number and then, you know, try to apply it to someone in a residence or, you know, in a community situation, I I think is is a really bad practice. And that's the average working age person as well, and we're not talking about infants, male, yeah, (laughs) and and we're not talking about the elderly or immune compromised, et cetera. So uh, I I think that's an important uh, distinction as well. Bob, anything further on that? I want to go no, over to no. the PCB section because Absolutely. this fascinates me. Um, uh, how? Let's talk a little bit about PCBs. And, and first of all, they're oftentimes found, as I understand it, in caulking in, in different types of caulking and oftentimes on windows and, and we see it in schools and other places. Why was the PCB in there in the first place? Well, the idea, and it's the, as you describe, it's the flexible material that would be, say, around a window frame or in an expansion joint on the exterior of a building. And the idea would be, you know, even though the building looks solid, it's, it's a really, you know, a, a number of dissimilar materials. You can have concrete and um, masonry and brick and metal all, you know, adjoining each other. And so, as you know, when the building expands and contracts as it heats and cools, it's got to be flexible so that you don't have the masonry uh, cracking um, mm-hmm. because of the different thermal expansions. So that's why it was put in there. Uh, and in fact, the PCB caulk was the, the top-end product. Um, it's one of the reasons you tend to see it mostly in institutional buildings. It wasn't used in residences for the most part um, because you had to specify it, and it was, it was the most costly caulking material. And what are PCBs? What, what, what does that stand for, and what is it a liquid? Is it a solid? Is it a gas? Well, they're liquids. There's a, it's a whole family of 209 individual compounds, and what they all have in common is the 
the biphenyl, which is, is you know, if you visualize, it's kind of like two six-membered rings joined together, and then you can substitute chlorine molecules around in the different positions, and so that's the origin of the term is polychlorinated biphenyls, and if you, you know, look at all the possible places you could put those chlorines, you wind up with 209 individual, uh, what the, the term is congeners, or 209 congeners. And they all tend to be liquids. Um, some are more volatile than others. As you can imagine, some of the less chlorinated ones actually have a fairly substantial vapor pressure. Um, and so they, they tend to be the ones that get into buildings by release from the caulk. At the high end, the ones that are more highly chlorinated um, tend to be very non-volatile. They don't evaporate very much at all. And besides caulk, where are the other areas where you'll find PCBs in a building? Well, as it turns out, uh, as people have dug into these, it's a little surprising, at least to me, that there's still an awful lot of fluorescent light ballasts out there that contain PCBs, um, which, you know, I actually always thought that was sort of an artifact from the past, but when people, especially like in New York City, looked into the schools, they found a remarkable number of those ballasts were still in use. Uh, it's also in paints, and it's in industrial coatings. Um, it's been used, the, the one use I wouldn't have predicted in the past was carbonless copy paper. It turned out it had substantial amounts of PCBs in it. So it, what you have at this point is kind of a mixture of these primary sources. If you look at what's within a building, you know, you can have PCBs in the caulk and in the paint, and things like that, but then you can also have what people term secondary sources where the PCB has evaporated and now it's in the ceiling tiles or it's in um, the carpeting or the upholstery or on the walls. And so when you're trying to remediate a building um, where you, you're concerned about PCBs, what people have found is that frequently just removing the primary sources doesn't really completely solve the problem for you. And why are we concerned about PCBs at all? Are they, what's the health issue that we're dealing with here? Well, it turns out the concern for a long, long time has been carcinogenicity, and the evidence is really good. In fact, just last year, there's an uh, international body called IARC. It's the International Agency for Research on Cancer, and they upgraded PCBs to the highest level of risk that they're known human carcinogens. So, you know, I think the, you know, the story has been written about the cancer risk of PCBs. What's a lot less known, though, is that there's a lot of new research that shows that PCBs are really strong endocrine disruptors and that they're very potent developmental toxins. And, and a lot of that has come out within the last few years where people have developed these remarkably sophisticated methods of looking at the way, for example, in a developing organism, the way the cells communicate with each other as, say, the nervous system develops. And then these molecules can get in and, and disrupt some of these processes that eventually wind up, you know, being seen as disruptions in the way someone's immune system works, or the way their thyroid functions, or the way their um, neurologic system works. And so, that evidence is, is, I think I told you earlier. You know, I study, I follow the literature, and it seems like every week there's another study of some kind. And sometimes it's on humans, sometimes it's on animals, sometimes it's this basic molecular research, but. Uh, the weight of evidence is, is growing really quickly. So potentially like exposures in primary schools uh, maybe a highly susceptible population to that. 
Well, that's exactly it. It's a bit of a perfect storm in that you mm-hmm. have the people who are still developing, namely right. our kids, you know, who you least want to be uh, at risk of this, who are exposed to this body of compounds that the evidence is accumulating quickly that are developmental toxins. And are we still using PCBs in building products today? No, they've been outlawed since I think it's 1977. Um, the TOSCA legislation, Toxic Substances Control Act, um, banned the production and, and use of, of PCBs. But they're, they're very persistent. I mean, that's that's the thing that, that is really at the root of our, our concern now is that most of the PCBs that were produced are still somewhere in the environment uh, because they just don't degrade. Um, you know, they, they, they are not a chemical or a family of chemicals that appears naturally. They're, they're purely the synthetic chemical. And so as I've thought about it, it's like, well, why are we surprised that they don't degrade because of natural processes? Because there is no natural process that, you know, uh, produces these things. So that's how the, the concern has been for, you know, for many, many years about PCBs in the diet, which is why you tend to see don't eat certain types of fish warnings. Uh, you know, you warn pregnant moms or women who are, you know, trying to have families, you know, to avoid fish from certain sources or to avoid certain types of fish because they're the ones that tend to accumulate the PCBs, which has all been, I think, pretty good advice that this new route of exposure is is something that's, um, you know, kind of a separate pathway that people could be exposed to high levels by inhaling air within buildings, and that's that's the, the new finding. And how, how, you know, I know, Jack, and, and you've done doing some work with PCBs. How often do you find levels that, in the air, that concern you? Well, part of, Jack can answer that in some ways because he's, he's done a lot more of the actual air sampling than I have. But what I would um, suggest is that when people find it in a building, if you, if you sample the bulk material, um, and that would be the caulking or the paint, uh, around the windows or in, on the inside of the building too, um, there's a reasonably good chance that uh, the air samples could be above the levels that EPA has has um, recommended as being the levels of concern. Now, there's a lot of variability in those air levels. As you can imagine, it depends on the season. It depends on the ventilation rate within the room. Uh, depends on how often the room has been cleaned because you, you know the PCBs can accumulate in the the settled dust. They can also accumulate inside the ductwork in the ventilation systems. So there's a lot of variability in there. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I have one final question. You uh, you were the past chair of the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, and I'm I'm curious. They had a a book back in what was it '99, the Bioaerosols Assessment and Control. It's sort of like the Bible for a lot of us in the mm-hmm. indoor air quality world, the microbial investigation world. Is ACGIH still publishing? Books like that, and um, if so, what what uh, what would you recommend we get next? Well, this book is still valid, um, and mm-hmm. even though, as you point out, it was uh, you know from 1999, and and sort of sort of in my world, you know, anything that was published in the last century, you know, when you try <laughs> to suggest to a student that they should take a look at that book, it's a, kind of a non-starter. But it is still a, a, a valid reference. I, I actually. Um, I'm in touch with ACJH, and I, I checked with their executive director. Their re, this committee, you know, these books are written by committees, and so the committee that prepared, prepared this book 
um, has been reorganized, and, and they're now getting a new group together to um, come up with a new a new volume. But in the nearer mm -hmm. term, um, AIHA just published a book at last uh, month, end of February, I think, um, a, a guideline book about doing indoor air investigations. Yeah. And so it doesn't uniquely address the bioaerosol piece, but I think you know you guys would find it to be a really useful reference book, and it's it's very fresh. It was just published in 2016. Tremendous, Bob. Anything before we wrap it up? I'm good. Any questions from our audience? All right, Jack. Thanks again for joining us, uh, Doctor Herrick. Thank, thank you. you so much. Sure. It was a pleasure meeting you, and uh, I hope I can get you on for a full hour sometime. It's been fascinating. <laughs> thanks to everyone that joined us here at the uh, Northeast Indoor Air Quality and Energy Conference, and uh, I think we're getting close to lunch and other sessions, so enjoy the rest of the day. It was nice to meet you all. All right, next up is uh, going to be Ed Light. Ed, uh, Ed's a president. He's the president of Building Dynamics yeah, down in the D.C. area, Baltimore, D.C. area. He's an industrial hygienist, and they are uh, industrial hygiene and mechanical engineering consultants that specialize in indoor environmental quality. Ed's degrees are from uh, the University of Massachusetts and Marshall University, and, and he's also a fellow, a senior fellow, at the American Industrial Hygiene Association. Past guest of IAQ Radio, too, Ed. Always great to, to see you, and uh, enjoyed the presentation yesterday, to sample or not to sample. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about about that. When is sampling appropriate on an IAQ project? Well, actually, uh, if you look at these uh, IAQ issues objectively, sampling is not needed to resolve most IAQ problems. And uh, the, uh, the trend of many IAQ practitioners to come in to investigate and start grabbing samples uh, of various types of contaminants, uh, general sampling is really more often than not misleading. It's, it's not helpful and uh, as, as far as a, a, a role of sampling to actually answer the important questions you're trying to determine, uh, you know, for IAQ is what are the building conditions, do they have problems, and if there are complaints, are they being caused by the building? Uh, we see the only uh, real need for sampling is after an initial general investigation has narrowed down the focus and that data is actually needed to answer a question. And then sampling should only be done site-specific to set up a sampling strategy and look at a condition that's actually relevant to the problem. Now, with those limitations, I think the vast majority of IQ sampling done by practitioners now doesn't meet those criteria. So you get numbers and reports, and often the conclusions you draw from that would be misleading. They can go both ways. Uh, and be false positive, where, boy, we're in compliance with the numbers, your environment's good, and you got a problem. It could be false negative. Well, we're over some magic number. We've got a problem. But actually, your building is working fine, and it's not causing complaints. Let me clarify a little on, on sampling. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, do you take temperature relative humidity on a regular basis? Or are you considering that part of sampling, or are you talking about more complex diagnostics? Well, no, it's two 
different animals. Uh, I'm, my uh, first criticisms here with contaminant sampling. Okay. And but I have a lot of criticisms of indicator sampling too. So you walk around the building and you're getting your temperature, humidity, and CO2. First of all, that's just a quick snapshot. If you're really looking at how a building and HVAC systems run, these are changing all over the place with different conditions. And so spot measurement really isn't going to tell you are you okay or not. Now, this, this simple thing of getting a, a CO2 reading in the air is uh, absolutely meaningless. We, we can't attribute CO2 levels to whether or not we have a health issue. And a legitimate role of CO2 is if you use it right, you can actually get an estimate of the ventilation rate and then get a sense, for example, comparing it to ideal ash rate, you know, how's your ventilation doing? But again, it's a spot check. And CO2 is only a measure of ventilation under a very limited planned out condition, which is the space needs to be occupied uh, pretty much at full occupancy for that space for at least a couple hours. And then if you're getting CO2, you can calculate that into an estimate of ventilation rate. But again, that ventilation rate is only for what the HVAC is doing at that time and for the number of people in that room. Okay. Well, so st steady state's a big thing with CO2, obviously, yeah, and, and trying to reach that. To get theoretical steady state, a uh, couple hours, it's, it's not exact, but we, we call it measuring a near steady state worst case condition. And so, for example, we've gone through offices and schools and really planned out, uh, is this place normally occupied? and we go in at least a couple hours after that, so we figure we're getting a ballpark estimate to look at ventilation rate. And what, what type of indoor air quality contaminant is not really discussed enough, in your opinion? Oh, the, the biggest thing, the meat and potatoes issue of smoke. Uh, residual smoke after a fire it hasn't had the, the press agents of stachybotrys isn't the big sexy issue and it's a very prevalent contaminant with absolutely no uh, testing standards, uh, no proven protocols attached to it, and that's been a, a real focus of our recent work. And actually what we're finding out, exposure to residual smoke uh, can be a real health issue and definitely a damaged property annoyance issue, and that industrial hygienists, if they do show up, which is pretty rare, and measure some contaminants, they're not going to answer the basic question, is this place restored? Restoration of smoke uh, really is defined in best study of traditional measure, uh, procedures of good restoration people, which is visual, wipe the surfaces, don't want to get any soot off it, and then no detectable smoke odor. So we've been refining our... Uh, really just following that, but being real detailed, systematic, really putting the building through its paces to see if there's truly no smoke odor coming out of the HVAC and under different conditions. And uh, boy, that's a so many fires and restorations. A good restoration will truly uh, get rid of that soot in the surfaces and the smell 
and it's really hard to verify it. It's much more of an art than a science. And it's a source removal issue too, isn't it, Ed? I mean, oh, that's what it's all about. It's not cosmetic, getting some odor machine in the air. To, you you got to get rid of the source, the yeah. viruses that that soot in the surfaces. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think that's true with like any remediation. It's uh, you know, you come down to that source removal versus looking for that magic silver bullet. You know, there's there's really no silver bullet other than labor and actually detailed uh, you know procedures. Right. So we see occupants and consultants and remediators with these air machines scrubbing and putting stuff out in the air, and that first of all doesn't get the sources ineffective. And a lot of times what they're putting out in the air is more harmful than what they're getting out. And, boy, that's a big commercial thing now, the sale and use of those magic bullet machines. Ed, one final question. I want to ask all the practitioners. I should have gotten the jack on that as well. There's a trend in the states to license people doing mold remediation and mold inspection. Are you for or against the licensing of these folks? Boy, am I against it. Don't even get started on that. I, I think it's government at its worst. It's pro-capitalism where it's not protecting the consumers. It's helping you know, certain uh, practitioners and it's a boondoggle for training companies. And mold is not a hazardous material. Uh, the vast majority of mold which is really moisture water damage uh, can be uh, resolved without expert workers, can be resolved without consultants. Testing for mold before and after, if you look at the science, is absolutely inconclusive. That's not answering the basic questions. Uh, so these state mold licensing laws are now saying you've got a mold problem, you have to have a consultant. Uh, pretty much have to have testing and those workers who are getting in and it's not rocket science work this is a basic restoration cleanup demolition work they have these workers got to go get trained and get licensed now on the other hand uh, there can be buildings with very complex engineering widespread complicated moisture issues complicated health issues and so what our mold licensing law gives anybody who's taken a matchbook cover, uh, uh, gotten a, a mold license, now becomes an expert, and they go in way over their head, complicated building science, moisture problems, uh, dealing with health issues that they can't begin to understand. Uh, industrial hygienists on their own, this is really multidisciplinary. Industrial hygienists can't truly understand the complicated medical issues, and engineering is really where it's at as far as understanding and solving IQ problems. So you get these IQ practitioners who really don't understand how a building works, don't understand moisture dynamics, and so they're licensed mold experts. And, and uh, boy, you know, our company, we practice around the country. We've been shut out of Florida and Texas where we used to solve big water damage problems because I won't get a stupid mold license. And now we're in the D.C. area. As of this week, D.C. has That's passed right. a stupid mold law, yeah. and my partners say, bite the bullet, Ed, you've you got to get a license. Yeah. <laughs> we got a license in Virginia, and so when they passed it, we had to spend a 1000 bucks a guy on mold training from a high school yeah. kid who'd never been out in the field. Yeah. And actually, we have a success story, and I'm active with Industrial Hygiene Association. We got Virginia to rescind their mold law 
And meanwhile, we had wasted our money on the training courses. <laughs> and these mold laws aren't, aren't really enforced. The state doesn't do anything to enforce it uh, unless there's a complaint. And so there's widespread. It's just a. It's not for the consumers. It's helping certain companies, and I don't like it. I mean, New York State's interesting because that new law there, you know, I think really under the guise of helping consumers has now allowed somebody literally with no experience, they can be, the criteria, right, 18 years old, $50,000 of insurance. I mean, what's that? Can you even buy a $50,000 policy? I don't think so. Not not even know. And and then these people now, after a four-day training class, are licensed and go out and effectively they're, they're attempting to do building science and do all that. And these are people with absolutely no prerequisite for field experience, which is really devastating, I think, to the industry. Right, and the, it's trying to tell the yeah. D.C. people, this bunch of lawyers, they've never been out in the field, why this is not, this is against the consumers. Because we found from our experience that with a little bit of information and guidance, maintenance people, construction people, handymen can do a lot of the basic remote remediation and just follow the basic instructions and now in these states that require to bring in a consultant, and a, it, it costs so much, it's such a hassle, mold's not going to get remediated, uh, you know, because of the cost and hassle. And we have such good luck with construction workers and maintenance workers with a little bit of direction, they can do their remediation. And in a complicated, big damage, water damage, then we tell folks, uh, bring in an experienced restoration contractor, not some new wave people who decided they're going to make put TV ads on and be a mold remediator. I had a and feeling you'd have an opinion on this, Ed. <coughs> yeah, I'm against it. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Next up, we have Guy Sylvester. Guy is the CEO of Absolute Resource Associates in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, an environmental services firm that provides laboratory services, indoor air quality services, and environmental project management. He is currently the chapter director for the Manchester, New Hampshire Indoor Air Quality Association and serves on the New Hampshire and Northeast Board of Directors of the American Lung Association. He's also a National Board of Directors member for the American Council for Accredited Certification and co-founder of the New Hampshire Mold Task Force, co-author of Senate Bill 125, which is the mold legislation in New Hampshire. So welcome, Guy. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Very good uh, to be here. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, this whole mold. Uh, we've had a couple of discussions here so far on licensing of mold professionals and, um, you know, it's done differently in different states. Um, actually, I, I prefer the model that you were able to get New Hampshire to agree to. Can you tell us a little bit more about that model versus, say, New York State? Sure. Uh, and I'll tell you, it's been a long road. We started this trip about eight years ago uh, attempting to get licensing and certification, uh, remediators and consultants. It was Basically, anybody that did consulting or cleanup uh, would be impacted, and we took that into the House, and the House uh, went to subcommittee. The subcommittee voted unanimously for it, but the chairperson of the subcommittee um, was had another agenda and talked to the floor and told the floor not to vote for it, so it got voted down. Hmm. And then it, we came back in 2011, and one of the persons who was on the subcommittee, uh, one of the House reps, uh, 
Schlockman, uh, Senator or uh, House Rep Schlockman asked us to put together the New Hampshire Mold Task Force. So get a group of people that are professionals. Get some state uh, employees. Get some public health officers. Get some consultants. Get some uh, some uh, property managers. Okay. Uh, get some remediators. Get some contractors in here. And we did. We had 12 people that came together and we met about once a quarter for three years. Hmm. And after the first time we got together and started talking about the first law that we tried to get passed, it was obvious we were going to have a difficult time coming on, getting together on the same page with legislation. But what we did agree on is that we wanted to write the standard of care for New Hampshire. What's the minimum standard of work that a contractor or a consultant should, should conduct themselves as? And um, and we put that together, we published it, and a lot of the public health officers now follow that. After we got that published, we came back to legislation again, um, and it, it's it's kind of a merry-go-round. It, it's it's really tough. This time, we joined up with the the Mold Task Force, the New Hampshire Manchester chapter of the Indoor Quality Association and the American Lung Association. So the American Lung Association has lobbyists. And what the lobbyists did was give us an opportunity to talk to the legislators. I I went up to the State House one day and this lobbyist walked me into seven different senators' offices, which I would never have had that opportunity. Hmm. But if anybody is out there interested in doing this type of work or trying to get some legislation through, uh, it'd be very difficult on your own. You really need the backing of different groups to come together and and uh, and be synergistic with their approach. The way this bill actually ended up going through is we wrote it. It included both um, all the consultants, all the remediators, all the contractors, and for some reason, when it passed the Senate, uh, the Senate had taken contractors or consultants out. They said that the consultants were too well educated. They didn't need to have legislation. Just the contractors did. <coughs> so when it went over to the House, they decided to put it back in because they didn't like that the consultants were out. So they put it back in. They also didn't like the idea that they felt that if we had this, a license and certification requirements, that too many workers would be unemployed because of the licensing. So you have a lot of people that would not be able to get licenses that are currently doing the work, and they would be out of a job. And that was the one thing that legislators did not want. Mm -hmm. So legislators put in uh, a line item in the, the, the language that said, if you are hired by a residential homeowner for remuneration of mold consulting or mold remediation, this law applies to you. If you're not hired for remuneration of mold assessment or mold uh, uh, remediation, the law does not apply to you. Hmm. So now all of a sudden you've got plumbers, yeah. you've got property owners, you've got landlords, you've got anybody doing restoration in a house, that if you're hired for that purpose and you come across mold, you wouldn't have to say, time out, we now have to go get a licensed individual through the state and cost you more money. So it was very understandable that they had that approach. Um, 
However, it, it went to committee, and on a vote of 23 to 6, it passed, and then it went to the floor, and they tabled it. They sent it to executive session, because the chairperson uh, felt that uh, remediators uh, would still be impacted. So it was his concern that these guys couldn't pass a test, or they had trouble with... Uh Passing tests, uh, passing the background checks of okay. third-party certifications, okay. paying the dues for licensing, <coughs> all the above. Uh, okay. They were just I'm afraid sorry. it would, it would <laughs> put people out of work. Okay. So went back to session, and we agreed on several things. And it went, again, this time it was, I think it was 26 to 3, voted in favor of, went back to the floor, they tabled it again. And I thought this time when it was tabled, it wasn't sent back to executive session, so now it was done. Yeah. So I just I kind of forgot about it. It had been eight years we'd been trying to get this bill through, and we had nothing. And then one of the lobbyists called me about a month later and said, congratulations, your bill passed. <laughs> but the legislators rewrote it. What did it say, the entire bill or a part of the bill? <laughs> they, they took most of the bill, but the first thing they did is they took licensing out. The second thing they did is they took remediation out. But the three caveats that they had was, number one, uh, you, if you are going to collect samples, you must be third-party certified by a, with a certification specific to mold. You must, in order to write a specification or if you're going to write a protocol, you must have third-party certification specific to mold. And by third-party, that means that the group that if you go for training and take a, a test with them, you're not necessarily third-party. You would have to go to a separate group to get your certification through? Correct. So when we wrote the bill, we wrote it that you would have to be third-party. And professional organizations like PEs were also included. And Third-party certification requires you to uh, take an exam for your knowledge, requires a background check by your, a board of your peers, it requires a review of your application that looks at your education and projects that you have uh, accomplished and experience. Experience. Because mm -hmm. prerequisites. Uh, yeah. Right. Now, the other thing that we wanted the third-party certification is that in the past, you may have a consultant or remediator that do work, and if they did poor work, there was no repercussions. They mm -hmm. just were off and gone. You have a third-party certification. You can now launch your own investigation with that certification board, and they're required to go back and take a look at what happened in that project. And a board of your peers will evaluate whether you did a good job or whether you did not. And the last thing I would say is what the legislators did put in there that surprised us is they made the language specific to a mold certification. So ACAC is the only third-party certification nationally that offers that, which meant all of a sudden all the CIHs in the state had to go out and get certified by mm. ACAC. Okay. The PEs were no longer included. There are a lot of professionals that do a good job uh, that were no longer accepted under this law. So if you are a consultant in New Hampshire, you have to have, to do mold, you have to have a third-party certification, and, and the definition pretty much leaves you with the ACAC. Yes. 
do you then have to get a license from the state? No. So it's just a requirement by law that you, to do this type of work, you must be certified through. That is correct. This group. Okay. That is correct. And that is not currently required of people doing remediation. That is correct, except if the remediator is going to write their own specifications or their own protocol or collect any samples, that would then fall under the legislation. And are they allowed to do that on the same job they do remediation on? Uh, are they allowed to remediate on the same to job? Take they samples, uh, write a protocol, and then do the work. The law doesn't separate the consulting from the contracting. Okay. It just says that if you're going to do work in New Hampshire as a consultant, or if you're going to do any work in New Hampshire, if you're going to write specifications or take samples, you must have this consulting entity certification. I see. Okay. And do you think there's a chance they will come back and add the remediation people into this, or is that pretty much uh, done? What I've heard more is from uh, one of the association from the medical community, okay. and I've had several reps that are uh, MDs in the state that have complaints uh, within their jurisdiction of landlords not correcting mold problems. And so they're very concerned about the landlords. And my discussion has been, that's going to be a big piece to bite off if you're going to fight the landlords in New Hampshire. And their correspondence back to me is, uh, I think the medical community could do that. Hmm. So I, I haven't heard more. It wouldn't be this current session. It would be next year if it occurred. Would you have preferred to see them uh, require that they also get a state license? Because that's another way they could go back to that you could remove their state license, which is another way we could, they could try and keep uh, the wrong, you know, people that aren't doing the right thing out of the industry. Right. Well, interesting enough, the very first time we had licensing in there and the House said, uh, take licensing out. No, <laughs> we, no, we did not have licensing. We just had certification. They said, put it in. We're New Hampshire. We want control of what happens with these legislative language. So we put it in, and then the next time we tried it, they took it out, and then we put it back in, and then before they passed this last one, they took it no, out. Yeah. I personally believe that licensing is very different depending on which state you go into. You know, Clearly. If you, look, yeah. you know, if you look at New Hampshire, the fact that we've got legislation, what we were after all along was protection of the consumer. The, the consultants were tired of individuals going out and just taking samples and saying, okay, $1,000, please, uh, and here's your report. And the report may show that there was mold or there wasn't mold, but there was no physical inspection or no physical investigation conducted. Mm -hmm. yeah. So they ended up calling another consultant that knew what they are doing to go back out and look for the mold so that you could write recommendations on what needed to be done. So I think that licensing can be good, but I think licensing needs to be appropriate to the work that we're doing. And I think it needs to be a committee from the industry. Um, and as we heard earlier, that there were individuals that are against licensing. And I think that if you have the appropriate language in the law, it can work. But it's got to be, from my, in my opinion, the big thing is consumer protection. We're looking to protect the consumer. I mean, one of the problems, yeah, I mean, New York State, 
and, and I'm from New York, obviously, and, and I am a licensed mold assessor there now. And one of my big bones of contention is their their criteria, right? Is that you're 18 years old, you have minimal insurance, and you're able to pass a 50 question multiple choice test that the trainer wrote. Right. And now you have, a, and you can pay a $150 fee. Now you're licensed. Right. You have four, you know. So somebody literally with no experience, with only four days, no prerequisite knowledge, nothing, is now out there put on par, equal with people with you know 10, 20, 30 years experience, CIHs, um, third-party accredited individuals, right. and they're not equal. You know, and, and so, so in in the premise of protecting consumers, what they've created is four-day wonders that potentially are a lot more detrimental to consumers than was previously there. Right, because the consumer now thinks, I've got somebody who's licensed. Right. They're obviously Their criteria is the license, they believe okay. you're... And yeah. I have to say, yeah. that when we did have licensing in the language of the law, what it said was, is that you get a third-party certification from ACAC mm -hmm. or CIH, and you bring that certification to the state, you pay your 50 bucks a year, mm -hmm. and you'll be licensed. Well, that's what Florida does, too. Florida takes third-party outside you know, accreditations right. and, and uses that as their licensing program. But, again, there's prerequisites, ACAC or something, a CIH. You can't just sit for the CIH exam without a lot of prerequisites. Yes, you know? exactly. So. exactly. Well, but then the whole licensing concept starts you down a potentially slippery slope. So... Should water damage restoration professionals be licensed? Should HVAC duct cleaning professionals be licensed? What about people who clean up after fires? Where do we start and where do we stop? Well, I, I really can only answer for the, you know, for the environmental field that I'm in. And I saw an opportunity uh, to do something good for the people of New Hampshire. I saw time after time that there were individuals who had remediation conducted and I would have to go out four or five times to do clearances and not even take samples, just walk in and literally see visual mold and the remediation firm saying they cleaned. Um, so, it, and, and when they, they're talking about 10 or $20,000 and then there were other times I would go out and somebody was asking for a second opinion, and I went out, and they had somebody who had conducted the investigation and gave them a $20,000 price for what I considered minimal. Uh, it was a, a leak from the bathroom on the second floor that came through a small hole in the ceiling of the kitchen, and there was less than six inches of staining, and yet the remediator that did the, the investigation as well was stating that the entire kitchen needed to be remodeled. So those are the things that I needed to prevent. So to answer your question, in, in New Hampshire, when I saw these things going on, I felt that we needed to do something. And I think, you know, it, it doesn't have a lot of teeth, but at least it is a start. And the public health departments are the one really acting on this more than anybody. And they're doing a great job of, when there is issues that come up, they do a great job of enforcing it. As far as other industries, I think that the, the professionals in that industry, as we did with a task force, really monitored our own industry. And when we monitored our own industry, we said, we think we can better the industry, we can up the standards, and we can protect the uh, consumer if we do some type of legislation. And I think that those other industries need to answer that for themselves. If someone comes from another state, say New York Bob or from uh, New Jersey, 
and they have a, a certification, are they able to practice in New Hampshire? Yes. If they have an ACAC certification, say a, 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 a certified microbial consultant, uh, that's a national certification. Mm -hmm. So if, if, no matter what state they live in, once they have that national certification, they can do the work in, in New Hampshire. That's another complaint I hear about licensing that, you know, it, it, you have, if all the states continue down the road, New York, for instance, yeah. has gone, you, you will, you'll have to have a license for every state to shut really good people out. Right. Especially when you have large clients that are nationwide and you're going, you know, to their different facilities. So in that respect, it seems like a, a good uh, compromise. And, and I'm curious, what, how big is the mold issue up here in, in New Hampshire? We're in Maine now, but we're next door. You have, I mean, you, you know, I know in uh, hot, humid climates we see a lot of mold-related issues. Um, are you seeing a lot of the same thing here? Is it a big part of your business? Is it? It is a big part of our business. Although we've gotten very heavily into the government contracting, so we do work for the Navy and the Army Corps. But a lot of that is mold-related as well. Okay. That's any indoor air quality investigations or remediation. But as far as mold goes, um, it's it's a pretty big industry. Uh, I know there are probably uh, a good couple dozen uh, <coughs> investigators and remediation firms that are constantly kept busy with investigations. Our firm itself has one or two investigations every day, and uh, my colleagues in the industry are also kept busy. I think you're absolutely correct when it comes to the humidity, but it also has to do with the snow. If we have a heavy snow year and all that snow melts, mm -hmm. and then we get some, you know how it is, you get that mm -hmm. snow melt in April, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's 85 degrees, mm -hmm. and the building materials are still wet, and mm -hmm. it just, you know, blossoms. Probably ice damming, too. That's an issue. A lot of, a ice lot, lot of that, yeah. A lot of ice damming. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, you do indoor air quality investigations, but only the mold component of that appears to be licensed, or not licensed, but uh, regulated in New Hampshire. Is that accurate? That's correct. Now, I will say that I was on a, uh, a, a, commission, uh, a, a commission advisory committee in 2011 for indoor air quality, but it was specific for the schools of New Hampshire. Okay. And again, it was about a dozen of us, and we met once a month for a year. There were legislators that were part of that uh, committee, and at the end of it, we did pass legislation. And it was interesting listening to some of the, the talks earlier. Uh, the legislation did not really go after the same type of things we did. What it did was go after the source of what the schools had control over. So what kind of chemicals were they cleaning with? Mm. What products were all the teachers bringing in to clean mm. themselves? How much bleach did you see under the counters of each of these classrooms? Mm. Uh, so they, we developed a checklist and this checklist now has to be gone through at the beginning of every school year for every classroom, and that's legislated. Interesting. And it has to go back to the state for approval that they've actually conducted these investigations. You know, Joe, you touched on something, and I think inadvertently maybe, but most of the um, the licensing programs that are in the United States right now in the various states are all mold licenses. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're not microbial. They're specific to mold, the way it's written. Which, to me, mold obviously is a symptom of a water problem in a building. So the likelihood that you have bacterial issues in that same environment and a host of other biological agents, the potential's there. But yet, you know, it's it the licensing and all of the legislative knee-jerk reactions in most cases from what I've seen, are specifically to mold. 
And, and I think that's a problem, isn't it? What you, what's the thoughts on that? Well, I, I, I think it can be, but I think also if you look back in history, uh, what about when lead first came about? What about asbestos? And those are legislated now. Mm-hmm. And you have VOCs where NIOSH has come up with, you know, mm-hmm. PELs and TWAs and OSHA's approved those. So we do have some legislation with chemicals mm-hmm. uh, that we do look at. Uh, and more and more states are pushing radon. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yes, I do. Anytime I think that you have uh, kind of an emotional issue, one that hits the media. Mm-hmm. I mean, mold has really been the four-letter word for a lot of property managers. You know, somebody says mold and it's like you know, run as quick as you can. Um, and you say stachybotrys, people may not know what that is, but then you say black toxic mold, and all of a sudden people that weren't sick before you got there are now sick. They have the word killer to it, too. Killer black toxic mold. <laughs> killer black toxic yeah, mold. There you go. Uh, <laughs> Any questions from from our audience? All right. Well, I think it's. I'm good, Bob. Do you have anything further? Um, no, I, th- I think we touched. You know, touched on a lot of the important areas. You know, it was great. It's great. Well, thanks for having me in. Thanks for joining thanks us, guys. To thanks. My pleasure, Guy <laughs> Sylvester. Okay. Well, that wraps up today's edition of IAQ Radio. We uh, finished part one of our interviews from the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council's 2016 energy and indoor environmental quality conference next week we have dr brett singer from lawrence berkeley labs is going to join us and then two weeks from today we'll finish up with part two of our interviews where we had um, four other speakers that were at the conference join us and we had a great time up there a lot of excellent people and uh, looking forward to a attending again next year. So this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guests. We had Guy Sylvester, Ed Light, Dr. Bob Herrick, and Stephen Caulfield. And, of course, thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, and um, the restoration industry global watchdog, Pete Consigli, my engineer, John, you got to have faith, and most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, Please come back next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 